You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Genesis two nineteen. Well... That passage doesn't seem to cover fishes, but hey, I've got just the guy. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. This is an episode about science and cryptozoology. If you like monsters and you like science, this episode should be fun. Today we're talking with biologist Benjamin Frabel. Ben is an ichthyologist who works as the collection manager of the Marine Vertebrate Collection at Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego. He's also a listener to this show and an enthusiast of cryptozoology, but foremost, a dedicated scientist. Today, he's going to explain how life forms are actually named scientifically and how species are identified. And in the process of that, we'll be talking about monsters, science, dinosaurs, and silly names. Monster Talk. Ben, how did you get into this field? Um, well, I have had a fascination with kind of the biodiversity of life or the diversity of forms since a fairly early age when I was when I was young my my father collected fossils and so we kind of had fossils all over the house and you know as every young child does at some point I went through the dinosaur phase um, and then at some point early on I got a book about seashore life and was just uh, enamored with the diversity of seashore life and over time it turned into fish um, I uh, I will say that at, at least at some point, uh, Pokemon had a little bit of an influence. Um, at least later later on in my uh, in my life. Um, but then, uh, yeah, I just and then when I got to uni- university, I, I really um, wanted to pursue 
studying fish. It was fish was what I decided uh, was an interesting group of animals and what I wanted to work on. Um, and so once I was at university, I you know, tried to find if there was a collection there because it's kind of the best place to to have interactions with the diversity of different fi- types of fish on a daily basis. <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, so I just started there and I've been working in museum collections pretty much ever since uh, for about over 10 years now. So, so there's there's several kinds of fish. <laughs> uh, so, this this is something that comes up a lot, and uh, there's actually a, a cur- one of the curators at the Smithsonian. This is something he will always yell about: is uh, there's fish versus fishes. So, when you're using fish that way, plural, it's actually just referring to everything of the a group of fish of the same species. And w- when you say fish is, it's referring to fish uh, multiple species of fish. So, I actually. Uh, had a little faux pas there earlier. I should have said fishes when I said uh, fish. Oh, we didn't. We didn't notice. <laughs> so <laughs> let me see if I understand that correctly. If if there's lots of goldfish, that's fish. But if there's goldfish and catfish, that's fishes. Yes. Okay. I see. Okay. That's it. That's interesting. And, and if so I'm fishing, at, like, but <laughs> if I'm fishing, oh, there's no fish. There's. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's been my experience. So. <laughs> yeah, same. All right, <laughs> unfortunately, interesting. Uh, that is interesting. I, I suspect we're going to get to a lot of interesting things here. The reason uh, we're having you on is actually because you reached out to us, uh, which is great as a listener and a scientist, working scientist, um, about this topic, which I've always found interesting, but I didn't really, I, I never really thought about doing an episode about it. But I think this will be fun, and we're actually going to talk about. Uh, how animals are named. I'll probably call the episode something like Naming Monsters, but um, we'll, we'll probably <laughs> talk about uh, more common animals first. Um, but I wanted to get to like, let's assume for a moment that our listeners uh, uh, represent a wide spectrum of expertise. So I, I imagine there's some people who have no idea how this works or what even how animals are named at all and people who are actually working in the field. We're all over the place. But Uh, Because I know a lot of our listeners are young people who are interested in science, Uh, can you talk a little bit about the normal process kind of at a high level for how one goes about identifying and naming species? So when people discuss it, they kind of break it down into a bunch of uh, different parts. The initial part is the discovery of the new species, which can come in a lot of different and interesting ways Uh, for me. And I think a lot of ichthyologists or people that are that study fishes, um, like myself, uh, it's not as glamorous as one might think. Um, <laughs> you're sitting at a museum. You're comparing some dead fish that somebody collected in the 70s together. You notice one of them looks a little different. And you notice that it's from a slightly different part of the world or maybe slightly different habitat. And you go from there. Uh, that's, that's one way of discovery. And that's I, honestly how... A, a good number of them, at least in terms of fish. And, and, I'm, and throughout this interview, I'm actually going to kind of mo- mostly focus on fishes because that's what I know best. Um, I know in other fields of zoology and in botany, um, the species description process can vary a little bit, especially in botany. It's, it's, it's somewhat similar, but there it's, it's very confusing as to what a species even is in plants. Um, so I'm, I'm going to refer, refer mostly to, to fish and, and uh, vertebrate life. Um, but anyways, so, you know, you could find it in a museum. You could be fortunate enough to find it out in the field. Um, you could you could have a fisherman may have caught one, but it's very difficult to describe a species off of one specimen. Um, and so you go out on a purpose purposeful expedition and try to collect more. Um, 
and you can get lucky and do that. Uh, interrupting me, why would it be difficult with one specimen? Is it because of like sexual uh, dimorphism or that sort of thing? Or? Yeah, that that type of thing. You you want in a species description, it's you know it's not a hard and fast rule um, that you have to have more than one specimen. Uh, available, but it is definitely preferred because you can show that, oh, you didn't just find this one deformed or diseased individual of a commonly known species um, that you may just with one. Uh, You can also, it's really good to present kind of the wide range of characters uh, from a good number of specimens of the new species. So you can give like, you know, something along a 23 to 25 dorsal fin spines instead of just saying 23 dorsal fin spines on this one specimen that I looked at. And I guess that comes uh, to another point, which we can talk about a little bit later because this could take a a little tangent. Recently, actually just within the last year, there's been some some back and forth in science and nature, some of these, you know, higher, broader audience uh, research journals um, talking about describing species from photographs. Mm -hmm. Um, This is kind of put forward by I think some ornithologists people who study birds that don't want to kill these very rare and endangered birds um, to have specimens in a museum and so they would like to try to describe um, I think they're actually more interested in a subspecies which is below the species level description more for like a population Um, but they propose that hey let us use a very high quality image as the specimen quote unquote for this description and uh, as you could imagine there's actually been quite a lot of uh, backlash and people being like, no, this is a very bad idea. <laughs> well, I, 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 a blurry Bigfoot photo would not really count, though, right? I mean, you, you're talking about extremely yeah. high resolution. Yeah, I think a lot of this actually had already shaken up in the literature back in like the late 90s. Um, people were people were talking about describing uh, species from pictures, and I, I know at least in in the cryptozoology world, I think. Uh, there are about, I think, three, at least three cryptids that have had formal, quote-unquote, formal species descriptions, all from images, not specimens, surprisingly. Um, and so there was actually a little bit of discussion of this in uh, the more mainstream scientific literature back when this when this happened. I guess it was all precipitated by the uh, description of caddy. Um, yeah. Cat- <laughs> Forest huh. That's one of my. That was one of my questions. Yeah, I don't want to. I, I don't want to take us off the tangent yet. So we will actually come back to that. Yeah. 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 How often are new species found then of, of new fishes? Um, so at, at least in in the fish world, it's it's fairly frequent. Um, you know, like I myself am working on at least one at the moment. I know of a bunch of other undescribed species that are just kind of floating around, mm-hmm. um, and so there's a. a a database kind of that's that some researchers at the California Academy of Science put together called um, Catalog of Fishes. And they have done a really good job of keeping track of new species descriptions, changing of names, and all these taxonomic things that happen with fish. And I think it's roughly about 400 new species of fish are described every year. Wow. So it's pretty, it's actually pretty high. It's more than one a day, I guess, if you're going to break it down that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it can fluctuate. You know, there's some years where only 300 get described or 200 um but it's still and this is something i think a lot of people don't realize and something i um when i you know was first getting started in ichthyology as a as an undergraduate didn't realize is how much we actually don't have the diversity of life sorted out 
in biology class, you kind of just get this preconception that, um, oh, we already know what all the species are. Like, mm-hmm. it's, some guys took care of that back in the 1800s. People don't realize that it's still very much active, especially in uh, less populated parts of the world. So, you know, I think probably the the th- three richest areas of of effort in fish biology at least uh, fish taxonomy are south america freshwater systems mm-hmm. um which is what i did a lot of my graduate work in and there it's you can't sneeze in a in a neotropical collection without uncovering a new species <laughs> um and then Af- africa african freshwaters and southeast asian freshwaters are all okay. kind of the big uh where a lot of species are coming coming out of Neat. So basically, the looking well. Although I hear people talking about like if you go to these places where people haven't looked, they find new species. But I also hear people finding new species of smaller life forms in their own yards, even. Yeah. So so that's um you know uh, going back to just kind of the original the process. I mean, um, uh, the discovery of it. You know, that's another way is people find it by accident. Uh, when they're looking for something else. So you have all these fun stories of somebody who's like an ornithologist and they're, you know, doing doing a dissection on this seagull and they find this weird little parasite and it turns out to be like a new genus or something like that of parasitic uh, amphipod or tapeworm or whatever. Or uh, <laughs> people who are focusing on a group of organisms that just haven't been very well studied. And yeah. Again, a lot of those tend to be very small. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the bigger an animal is, the more well studied it tends to be. They're easier to study because they're big. I don't know. <laughs> As opposed to, there's a point where it gets a little difficult, like with whales or sure. large sharks. Sure. We we actually know very very little about their biology just because it is hard to track them down and see what they're up to. You can't put them in the aquarium, you know, easily. Right. <laughs> no, no, it would so, be tricky. Yeah. So, um, finding so many new species all the time does this make it more or less likely that aquatic cryptids might exist, or is it irrelevant? <laughs> yeah. So, th- I mean, so that aspect of it, um, as I was, just, you know, as we were just talking about, like the size does kind of play into it. Big, mm-hmm. th- new big things are not discovered nearly as frequently, um, and and a lot of new species descriptions. Um, are especially in uh, the last 15 or so years with the rise of using genetics um, to kind of poke around in evolutionary history uh, a lot of new species are things that look very similar to other species and people just didn't really notice that they were different Okay. and so um, is that the, like the, convergent no. biology? Or are you talking about like two? No, it, it's just almost, very closely just, related. Right, just closely related. Okay, got it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's actually like, ooh, I'd say the majority of species that I personally have described is that's been the case where the two fish, you know, uh, if you're not necessarily an expert in the group or you're just out collecting, you catch a bunch, you are like, oh, there's a little bit of variation in the color pattern of the species, but you put them in the same jar, set them over to the collection. And then, like, 30 years later, I come along and I'm like, ooh, let's run some genetics on the one with the spots versus the one that doesn't have spots and see if they're the same actually or not. And mm-hmm. a lot of times they do turn out to be genetically distinct, uh, closely related species. But there are instances of convergence as well. It's it's e- usually co- the, like, convergence as in two things that aren't at all related looking similar. Um, don't, don't, uh, the differences are less subtle 
than between closely related species. Oh, sure, sure. I, I, I yeah. think here about the uh, there's so many species that sort of mimic other species for defensive purposes. Oh yeah, oh, I love that. I, that and I love yeah. phasmids. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I I, I uh, so let's step back a minute um, about this process. So we've talked mm-hmm. here about how you find new species, but that doesn't really just give you the right to name it. First of all, you've got to prove it's new, right? And then, then yeah. so how does that work? Is that always done through journals? Yeah, so up until I think 1931, it was kind of all over the place. You know, so I guess to, just a brief history lesson on naming um, species conventions. Uh, all of this was kind of started in you know the age of enlightenment in the 1700s people started talking about trying to do a better job categorizing the the organisms around them and categorizing life and this all culminated in uh Car- carl linnaeus carlos linnaeus um who's a researcher i believe in sweden uh, he's a botanist mostly but he's he published this giant work called systeme natura uh systema naturae and in that he he kind of tried to categorize all organisms, plants and animals that he knew about, most of which are from Europe. But in that, he also made up what's called binomial nomenclature. Um, you know, this is the scientific name of a species. This is the species uh, genus name and the species name. It's like Homo in sapiens Latin. sapiens. Yeah, so Homo sapiens is the or Homo is the genus, sapiens is the species, sapiens the second sapiens is the subspecies name. Cool. Okay. Um, and so. This kind of became the naming convention. Prior to that, people had already played around with kind of these descriptive names, but they were making them like 12 words long, in all in Latin. And so you'd have something like, you know, just, I, I wish I had a good example, but it, it would be describing this one little fish from the Mediterranean, and it had just like three lines worth of, of very <laughs> long Latin words describing it. People realized that was a little overkill. So we ended up with just kind of these two names. And then this hierarchical classification system that Linnaeus developed as well with, with, with the help of some other researchers and, and other people's notes. And so this is where you, you know, taking you back to uh, a high school or, or middle school a biology class, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. And, a king you know, fellow came over from Scotland. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yay, high school. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, so it stuck. And that's what people are still using. There, there are some camps that see, you know, because it is kind of an artificial system that humans has classifiers as organizers have developed to deal with trying to sort out the very complex history of life. There are some people that really don't like it. There have been a lot of proposals to kind of come up with a different system. So there's like this thing called what's it, like phylocode, where you're kind of really just focusing only on the tips like the species, um, would you say like the tips on a tree, I guess, if you're looking at like a phylogenetic, an evolutionary tree, the tip is the species, right? And mm-hmm. so it kind of removes this hierarchy, which does kind of get confusing sometimes, but I think that makes it more confusing. So we've stuck with what Linnaeus came up with uh, over, you know, a couple hundred years ago. And so in terms of, in terms of that, um, people were kind of describing stuff all over the place, it, the early literature is very sticky and hard to get through. It's the descriptions. Linnaeus's descriptions were like two sentences long. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not great uh, to only describe a new species in two sentences. It doesn't really get a lot of information across. 
Um, and people you know, started expanding on this, but it, it still was kind of not standardized. It was all over the place. Until 1930, in the 1930s, um, they had a big meeting, and they developed what's called the International Code of Zoological Nomenclature. And in plants, there's also the International Code of Botanical Nomenclature. They meet every, I don't know, 10 or 15 years and kind of make a new edition of the IC, we call it the ICZN, the International Code of Zoological Nomenclature. And it's this book, it's not huge, um, and one page is in French, one page is in English, because apparently those are the only two languages that matter in uh, taxonomy. And it just lays down all the rules. Um, so when you are defining a new species and describing it, you have to write a formal description. Uh, you have to provide an illustration of the species or a, or a photograph of the species. And then you have to deposit what are called type specimens or type material at a museum. Um, or, you know, at some sort of institution where it is publicly available for other people to look at. What, what's a type specimen? I hear that all the time with Bigfoot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a type specimen is when you're doing your description, the, you, you kind of set aside two, two different types of types. There's a holotype and then there are paratypes. So the holotype is the model um, specimen for this, your hypothesis, what you're hypothesizing is a new species. So like that is going to stay at the museum and that is going to be the one that if you think, oh, I don't really think that's a new species because it looks really similar to this, uh, this other species that was already described, you can go to that museum, ask for the holotype, check it out, and, and um, you know, really that is the one that you, as the researcher doing the description, want uh, that specimen to show all the characteristics that you think make that a new species or its own species. The typing, as I said, was kind of made up in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So unfortunately, there's not actually a type for Homo sapiens. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> um, I can't remember. Oh, somebody wanted to have their body set. I think maybe it was like Cuvier, uh, who was a very famous French uh, naturalist and anatomist, I think wanted his body to be the type of Homo sapiens. <laughs> wow. I mean, shouldn't shouldn't uh, they dig up Carl Linnaeus? I mean, would that be... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, proposals of doing that as well. Yeah, is, but, uh, um, and so, and then you have what are called paratypes, which are kind of, you choose how many there are going to be. You usually want to get like a bunch of specimens from what you think the geographic range from all over that range. And then, you know, a good variation in terms of the size, uh, or you could also have like different levels of development. So you could have larvae, you could have subadults, or, you know, if you're dealing with plants, uh, you could have, you know, the seeds and the fruit and the whatever. Um, and so you have all those and you call those are paratypes. So those are also called secondary types. And those are also supposed to be very good representatives of what you think is a new species. And you usually also tend to kind of get the paratypes at a lot of different museums, not just one place. So they're kind of spread out so people can see them in different parts of the world. So you have to write your formal description. You need a picture. You need to de designate some types. And then you also have to propose a name and then explain the name. <laughs> okay. So I, I've got a question uh, following from, from that point. Uh, and I guess this is a question that you never hear ever at all. Um, so do you name all new species after yourself? Ah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that is in the International Code of Zoological Nomenclature. That is uh -huh. one of the things you are not allowed to do. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but other people can name them after you. 
Okay. And so if you're working in a field um, long enough, like in fish taxonomy, probably eventually somebody will name something after you, which is awesome. <laughs> yeah, or if you were doing cephalopods, you could be squid pro quo. <laughs> so, so yeah, so there can be some pretty funny scientific names um, out there. Uh, I, I, I wrote down a little list of just some fun ones. Uh, we can go through that now, or we can, you know, do it later in the episode of whatever. Yeah, let's, uh, okay. Oh, you want to wait? <laughs> Are you going to say wait? <laughs> I'm so interested in this topic. I, I didn't believe I've got. I'm just very. I have lots of questions. But yeah, let's let's talk about some fun names. Yeah, it's and so, then back and I, to the hard science because it's. <laughs> yeah, but so in terms of the names, I mean that's like the kind of the more interesting part of it, right? Um, you know, you see a lot of names like we can use Cadborosaurus willisi as a good example. The so Cadborosaurus is the genus, willisi is the species. Um, willisi is named in honor of whoever Willis. Um, Willis was their last name, and then it, it's it has to be Latinized, so there's an I on the end of it. Um, which is the the conjugation for uh, a male name, um, ma- uh, masculine gendered uh, uh, noun, um, and so it's one I. Sometimes two eyes are also present, so sometimes it'll be like Willis Willisii is how you'd pronounce that. It's two eyes, mm-hmm. um, and that kind of has more to do if, if if the name itself is actually derived from a Romance language. The endings are can be a little different because you are turning it into Latin. So if like you wanted to name it Saint Peter, you'd be like Sancti uh, Petri, would be would end up being the name. It wouldn't just be Saint Peter I. Okay. Wow, it's complicated. Uh, yeah, so it's a little complicated, but um, so you'll see you'll see a lot of species with you know a name and then Willis I. Something else you'll also see is um, it, the if it's named after somebody, it'll instead of being Willis I, it'll be Willis E, as in. Uh, it ends in an A-E. And so that is the feminine um, uh, des- uh, conjugation, I guess, uh, ending that you would use in an, in an honorific name, which is uh, one that you name after somebody else. So if it's named after a, a female researcher or your wife or you know your, your daughter or something like that, you put an A-E on the end of it. Neat. And you see those all, all over the place. Um, other names, you know, people usually uh, make the name somewhat descriptive. So the first species that I described is a lizardfish in the genus Cynotus, and it, the species is Macrostigmus. Uh, macro means big in Greek and Latin. Um, stigmus means spot. So you could think like uh, like stigmata, you know, uh, this, uh, people thinking that they have the wounds of Christ on their hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> stigmus means spot. And this fish, it, the best character for telling it apart from the other one is it has a much bigger spot on the side of its head. <laughs> <laughs> And so you, you tend to do simple things like that, but a lot of times, again, these names come into it. So um, there's a pretty pretty well-known ichthyologist here on the West Coast named John McCosker. He did his PhD here at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. He's studied fish all over, so he has a genus of fish named after him called Macoscarichthys, which is kind of a mouthful, but that literally just means McCosker's fish. <laughs> <laughs> Neat. And um, a pretty good example of also just one more example of that, that um, we can get into talking about a little bit more later because it's probably one of the most interesting fish species discoveries ever is the coelacanth, mm-hmm. um, which is this fantastic prehistoric looking um, lobed fin fish that was discovered in deep, deep reef habitats off of Southern, uh, Southern Africa. 
I am so glad you brought that up. It was on my list of <laughs> options. I was like, I didn't know if you want to talk about it, but it's absolutely something I want to talk about. So yeah. Yeah, and so its scientific name is uh, Latimeria chalumni, at least the species from Africa. There's actually a second species that was described in 2004, which is Latimeria metadonensis, I believe. Um, is that the one off of, is it India? Uh, Indonesia. Indonesia, okay. Yeah, and so Latimeria chalumni, uh, the genus is Latimeria. It's named, and it's an honorific uh, for uh, Marjorie Courtney Latimer, who was the naturalist she was a curator at the small muse uh, small museum in east london south africa and uh, she was the first person to get a coelacanth because the her buddy who's a fisherman was bringing her a bunch of shark specimens and he's like hey we also caught this thing do you want it <laughs> and <Yeah>. she <laughs> had no idea what it was um she did have some ichthyological training she wasn't so much of an ichthyologist but you know she had taken fish biology or ichthyology and she was, I, I have no idea what this fish is. I'm definitely going to take it. Um, so she sent an illustration of it to um, this researcher, J.L.B. Smith, who was a very prolific ichthyologist down at the main museum there in South Africa. And this fun little postcard with this little drawing by her of it. He saw it, thought he was going crazy, lost his mind. This fish disappeared from the fossil record 80 million years ago. How could you find this thing still living? Um is one of the greatest finds of probably in the 20th century of a new species. It's up there with like yeah. the okapi and some of the other kind of, you know, more fanciful things that turned out to be actual species. So J.L.B. Smith described it in 1939 and he named it Latimeria in honor of Marjorie Courtney Latimer. And then the species name is uh, Chalumni, and that's actually named after the river that um, he caught it kind of in uh, the, the the fisherman who trawled it up. He caught it in um, between the the Chalumna River, which is I think off of somewhere in South Africa, and so that's the the species is named in honor of that river. But that's the river he came up. I mean, they're they're a deep water saltwater fish, right? I mean, they're yeah. But he he caught he caught it kind of like in front of like the or near the mouth of that river in the ocean. He didn't catch it in the river. Interesting itself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, and so the other species of coelacanth, Latimeria uh, menadoensis, um, is named. So the ending ensis means uh, a place. So it's from the island of Menado. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly in Indonesia. And so this is so it'd be you know Latimeria. So Latimer's fish from Menado. Ah, so that makes more sense. So Grover Krantz named Bigfoot Gigantopithecus. Canadensis, yeah, Canada, Canadensis, probably. Which is yeah. after what is it? Canada, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So that's the, the same species epithet that the beaver has, actually. So the beaver scientific name, at least the Amer one in the in the U.S. is Castor Canadensis. There we go. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But these these sort of hypothetical names, they 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 only would be real names if they were they follow the rules in your your book there. Yeah. Right. So and so uh, we can we can we can talk about that now if you'd like. Well, um, before we get off coelacanths, I, I wanted to mention something about them that I think is interesting. They they are like a poster child for cryptozoology, which is funny yes. to me yeah. because while cryptozoology could be described as the hunt for you know hidden animals right, or mystery animals, I I always imagined or I always felt like it should be animals that people proposed existed. And, and no one was really proposing that coelacanth was still alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. 
it, 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 there wasn't like a rich folklore about it. It just, they discovered it was still alive and, you know, it overturned the idea that it was extinct. But that's not the same as, as a mysterious animal that people claim to see and then they find out it's real. Like the okapi is better. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and the, but I, I don't, I don't know why the coelacanth gets such a, uh, an exalted place in cryptozoology because it, it's something that I always also always kind of confused about as a kid. You know, I, I, I was interested in, you know, cryptozoology and, you know, mythological stuff like this. This is why I listen to the show. I, I still am very interested in it. And, you know, I get these cryptozoology books and the coelacanth would always be in there, but I was like, Hmm, why? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is peculiar. I, and maybe that's, maybe they like a more expansive, I mean, it's not like there's a, an organization or a body that determines what is a cryptid, but, yeah. but I, they, I think I, I feel a little bit like that's cheating in, in a way, you know, and, but I think what it, what it is with the coelacanth actually is that it, it highlights this living fossil uh, you know that, yeah. that I think a lot of people want cryptids to be living fossils. Yeah, you know, lake monsters, oh, as Yeah, exactly. Big Bigfoot as as no, that's um, that's a very good point. Gigantopithecus. So or, I want to throw know. out something else. Again, I'm not a biologist, but I read a lot, and and one of the things <laughs> that bugs me about the whole idea of living fossils is there are several species around that that seem to have a strong morphological resemblance. They appear in form quite like their ancient ancestors. Mm-hmm. But that does not mean that they have not evolved. They could have undergone tremendous molecular changes over the course of these millions of years. And we just don't know it because we don't have the genetic material from those ancient bodies. So Yeah, and so so something that's really interesting with some of these living fossils, sorry uh, to cut you off. Sure, um, no problem. Uh, is that a lot of them, like, so there's this thing called the uh, lungfish, which is another type of lobed fin fish. So these are different than most other fishes the coelacanth is, is a lobed fin fish as well in that at the base of their fins they have a number of bones and in the history of the evolution of life uh ancestor of tetrapod organisms was a lobed fin fish that crawled up you know into a muddy environment and these little bones in the base of their fin turned into the bones of our arms our legs our hands um, so these are a very ancient, very interesting group of fishes, and they led to, you know, the re- radiation of land tetrapods on land. Um, tetrapods being, you know, four-limbed vertebrate cre- uh, mam- uh, animals. Like and a quick shout out to our friends at Tetrapod Zoology and the Tet Zoo podcast. <laughs> yeah. It's, but what is really crazy is a lot of these te- so these lungfish have some of the largest genomes of any animal. Their genomes are just like billions upon billions of base carriers they're huge because they've just been around this lineage has existed for so long that they just kind of gone through a lot of what are called genome duplications and they just have ended up with just these absurdly large genomes zelicans also have a very large genome um but yeah so in terms of morphology though it is this a lot of these things they call living fossils are called such because they look exactly like they're you know 80 million year old or 170 million year old fossil and part of what that is is that they found a morphology that works and it works in a lot of different conditions for some or very specific conditions but it's worked right (laughs) and so there's not a lot of incentive incentive in natural selection or even drift to get away from that morphology um so you see this in like nautilus you see this in scorpions you see this in uh 
you know, so like some lobsters. You see it in ginkgo. That's actually, ginkgo is a great example. It's the last, you know, thing in this entire, um, uh, what, entire order is this one ginkgo uh, biloba, biloba. Um, and it looks exactly the same as ginkgo did 200 or 150 million years ago. Um, yeah. But, so that's, I think, what is so interesting about these things we call living fossils, right? Um, it, it is crazy but, because what that means is even though they may be really biologically different in the molecular level, those same crocodiles would probably be really sexy to their ancient ancestors, right? I mean, they're good. <laughs> Potentially. Yeah. Good way of putting it. Although, I think, I think the other thing is we uh, – You've, you've really already highlighted in a great way how much expertise comes into play with these sort of uh, classifications. And for the average layman, you know, I, you know, most people probably couldn't tell the difference between a caiman and an alligator. I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, it's just mm-hmm. all going to look like a crocodilian, and that's, you know, as much as they need it's- to know. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and are useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur (laughs) injuries, paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And yeah. so I think that is definitely a, a very important part of describing new species, um, is that you really need to have the expertise of the organism that you're dealing with and uh, to provide a meaningful description you know it's there's all kind of these people who who want to describe a new species and maybe say they're like an ecologist they are a good scientist um they but they're they're not very well versed in fish taxonomy and evolution they this the description that they would do is is not necessarily the best and there's a lot of times where people have gotten themselves kind of in 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 trouble or just like really wrote a really bad paper and it somehow gotten got published um and th- so the name is there but the original description is very bad 
are very poorly done. So somebody could has to go back and say redescribe the species, which also happens a lot with some of these like you know ones from the early 1800s where they literally wrote three three sentences. Um, you know, somebody will go back and what's called redescribe it. And so the expertise really is important. And that's something that's kind of scary, especially in taxonomy. You see articles about this pop up every, uh, every once in a while that taxonomists are a dying breed. It's not focused on very heavily in undergraduate education anymore. And a lot of, the, a lot of people don't go into it just because it's hard to get the grant money. You know, it's, it's hard to make this sexy to <laughs> the layman. Um, it's, to some degree, it can be very sexy, but um, you know, it's it's you're not you're not curing cancer, mm-hmm. you're not developing a super weapon, so it's it's a little harder to fund, and it's tedious, and people find it kind of boring. So as I said, you know, you have to write a very detailed description. What this entails is, you know, writing a very detailed description of the ana- the external anatomy of the organism. And then you have to do all, at least in fishes, you have to do all these proportional measurements. So like, you know, snout length, eye diameter, length of first dorsal fin spine, anal fin length, um, caudal peduncle depth. That's one of my personal favorite um, (laughs) anatomical parts of a fish. I think it was insulting us. (laughs) The peduncle. I I think you just cast some sort of uh, hobbit spell. (laughs) Yeah. So the peduncle is the area like at the base of the fish's tail. I don't know where I, you know, I looked this up at some point in the past, but I couldn't tell you where that name came from. (laughs) Sure. But so you have all these measurements. You usually give a table, you know, you count. So you count all the dorsal fin spines. You count all the rays. You do an x-ray and count all the vertebrae. So I wanted to ask, how has molecular biology and DNA typing affected species naming? Are there corrections that have come into place over time? Yeah, so I mean, it as soon as people started being able to do molecular methods cheaply in the 90s, it really took off, especially in the world of systematics and taxonomy. Um, but people also use it for population biology. That um, Some folks use it to kind of identify new species so that's another way is that you just collect a whole bunch of fish from an area you of the same type you know put them all together in a tree you can either do this like purposely looking to see if there's going to be some genetic differences which might be a little cheating but not really Um, you're still finding new species or you do it by accident you just put everything that you collected together in a phylogeny with you know, sequencing a couple genes, and you find this lineage that you didn't have any idea was, you know, present. And so that's one, that's how you can say find a new species using molecular methods. But this has also helped a lot with um, species delineation, especially in not so much in fish, but in birds. There are tons of subspecies, and also in mammals. And molecular methods have really kind of given us a, a better idea of, um, how closely related some of these are. Say, you know, we're calling this a subspecies, but it's actually genetically not at all different. Okay. Um, Or we're calling it a subspecies and it's genetically very different, so we need to bump that up to a species. Like the uh, the panda question, is a panda a bear or is it related to raccoons? I I, I think... uh, Above the species level, it's molecular methods are at this point indispensable, especially above the species level, trying to figure out the evolutionary history of a group. Again, it's been quite a few million years. A lot of stuff's happened. Billions of (laughs) members of that lineage have come and gone. 
uh, a lot of things can happen. And so molecules really do hold a lot of that information. So it depends on, at least in fishes, I feel like it depends on where, what, how, what the fish you're describing is like. Um, I guess that's not a good way of putting it, but say if it looks very similar to another species and you're trying to say it is a different species, you at this point, you probably want to have some molecular results in that paper and be like, yeah, I know it looks really similar, but I have found a few differences. And also, if you look at their genetics, they are pretty different species. Of course, that implies that that if there are species that look a lot alike and people haven't studied them, that we're going to find even more speciation with lots and lots of molecular studies. And I mean, that's kind of it has actually ramped up a yeah. bit since the rise of using molecular uh, methods. Well, you hit on an interesting thing that I never really thought much about before, which is that Linnaeus was operating about a hundred years before Darwin. Mm-hmm. So, how does species naming work with the evolutionary tree? Um, so, you know, scientific binomial nomenclature, Linnaeus's classification system, is artificial. It's things at the species level. It's a it's, it's an entity that you can wrap your head around for the most part. It is it is not clear cut, but at least. You, you could say this group of organisms that all look the same are probably related. But once you get above kind of like the genus level, things start to get a little like, what is a genus? What is a family? What is an order? Things start to get a little fuzzier. And there's actually not very good definitions of what those things are. There, there are like written definitions, but in terms of operational definitions, what a family is versus what a genus is. Like I could get, you know, think of just a group of fish where the diversity of different shapes of fishes that occur in this one genus are more diverse than this, <laughs> the like six genera in this one family. Um, and so it's kind of the, the Linnaean system does have its flaws. And a lot of those relate to kind of just these higher level uh, bunching of species. But you can, you know, evolutionarily in using molecular methods, kind of if you make what's called a phylogenetic tree, you know, uh, kind of sort out how things are related by comparing um, kind of like a matrix of characters to construct a topology, just kind of like a branching figure of relatedness. And you can see distinct clades. A clade is a bunch of you know organisms or these what I call tips or branches that, that branch off together. And you know these do correspond to what we're calling gen- genera or a genus, what we're calling a family, that kind of thing. So it does hold up for the most part, but there's definitely... It's blurry. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Okay. And um, in some of the correspondence that we had before the show, um, you mentioned uh, a little bit about lumpers and splitters. Can you mm-hmm. tell us a bit about those? Yeah, so that's a that's a pretty fun aspect of it. So lumpers are people that are, try to lump everything together. They, you know, see a couple specimens, or, you know, people, some, somebody might describe two species that look very similar and are only different the only difference is maybe a slight difference in body shape or something along those lines and they'll be like no i don't think i don't think that that other that one should be a different species um i'll just use lizard fish as an example but say like okay so there's this fish cynotus fetens in the caribbean and the gulf and the, the gulf and, and the coast of um the united states there's another species that was described by a guy in the 30s called cynotus bondi um 
in the 60s, somebody was like, no, I, I don't think that looks different enough to actually be a different species. So they do they sink it um, or they synonymize it. So they're like, no, this is not actually a different species. This name is referring to Cynotus fetens. So what happens is Cynotus bondi becomes a synonym of Cynotus fetens. Um, somebody could come along later and pull it back out and be like, no, it was actually, here's evidence to show that it is actually a different species. And so the lumpers are people that try to kind of rein it back in and put put it back in um, minimize the number of distinct species, I guess, to because they you know it's they see it as either overkill or they think people are going a little crazy with their species descriptions. So splitters are kind of the opposite of that. They're splitting everything up to the most divisible level. Um, I'd say, at least in ichthyology, for the most part, younger ichthyologists um, tend to be more on the splitting side of things than people of the kind of the the early baby boomer generation ichthyologists um, tend to be more on the lumping side of things. Would you say that's because it's easier to do the splitting and they're looking to make a name for themselves? Potentially. <laughs> that, was, that was horrible. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Can you, I've cracked myself up. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was like prepping myself for your puns. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, there's no preparation. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing you can do. Sorry. It's a condition. But, uh, but yeah, no. So, I mean, that's probably part of it. But I think with molecular methods, especially, splitting has gotten uh, kind of the upper hand because we are finding these molecular differences that people can propose correspond to new species but something that's really interesting in there that i'm just going to mention very briefly is the cutoff like in a molecular study when you have a genetic uh, a tree based on sequencing a couple genes what percent difference you use to say this is a different species than this one is kind of like not very standardized People tried to standardize it. They tried to standardize using this one gene called cytochrome oxidase 1, CO1, the barcode gene. I don't know if you've ever heard the barcode, the genetic barcode. It's this one gene that you know all organisms have. It's in the mitochondria. No. Um, and people tried to use that as like the species gene. Like This one varies the best between species for sh- telling species apart. Oh, okay. It, it has... It's flaws. I mean, it's a mitochondrial gene. It's not part of the nuclear genome. It's part of a different, completely different genome in the body. So it's has has those flaws. And for d- different groups of animals, their mitochondria can evolve very differently and very much faster or slower than other ones. Okay. Um, anyways, so in in cytochrome oxidase one, they just <laughs> some people wrote a paper in like two thousand, uh, I want to say five or six, and they're like two percent genetic difference is the cutoff for species in mitochondria. I mean, in uh, cytochrome oxidase 1, CO1. <laughs> but that doesn't really hold up too well because there are people that are just going to make the argument, oh, this is 1.2% difference. No, they're still definitely different species. Look at how different they look. Um, so it's well, kind of a arbitrary, somewhat not necessarily arbitrary, but not the best cutoff, I guess. Well, I, I think it's probably worth mentioning that the whole idea of species is kind of a human construct. I mean, I mean. Yeah, that's, I mean, as I, as I yeah, mentioned with yeah. like kind of whole system. This is one of those topics where I, I think most working scientists, especially biologists, would, you know, the idea of evolution and natural selection is a given. You have to, it's it's obviously real, right? Yes, yes. And, no, no, it's not. A, and, 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 and it's kind of <laughs> funny because you've got 
this other thing going on where people just don't want it to be real and are looking for little excuses for why it's broken or can't work because they find mm-hmm. one thing that they feel like is an exception. Meanwhile, right. you're going so <laughs> deep, right? <laughs> it's like yeah. Everything's related. We're all related. Every living thing. If you bring yeah. in like one living thing that doesn't have DNA – well, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, show me. Right. But uh, other than that, everything seems to have a really nice uh, relatedness. But the idea of species yeah. is, is so complicated. Uh, yeah, even though, even though everybody it. thinks they know what it is. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's it's one of these things. You know, you can think of another example of something like that where you you know what it is, but you can't actually describe it if somebody asks. It's like what love. a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know it when you experience it, but you can't describe it. Right. <laughs> That's why there's so much music. Like jazz, um, yeah. <laughs> but so this is what's called the species concept. And so a lot of people operate, what they're taught in high school, this is changing finally, but what you're taught is a species is a group of organisms that can't interbreed with other organisms or if they do interbreed uh, the offspring are sterile so this is you know like horses and and donkeys make make mules or i can't remember the the one that's the hybrid but the, the one of them sterile um it's you know in some duck species you see that a lot and it it, it holds up as a species concept this is a, a really easy straightforward way of defining a species is it can't interbreed with other stuff hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's the one I hear most of the time. But I, yeah, I, and that's but, called the bi- that's called the biological species concept, and that's the one that you're taught in school. That's the one a lot of people operate under, mm-hmm. but it doesn't work great for a lot of things, especially plants, because <laughs> okay. they they can hybridize like crazy. Yeah, and make new species really quickly. They are weird, but yes, <laughs> but they're slow, and most people find them boring. So you know, <laughs> <laughs> but so there are a whole host of other concepts that you can use. Uh, to describe a species, you know, there's the uh, phylogenetic concept, which is you know doing more what I was talking about, like looking at a single lineage of ancestor descendant populations. So, like, this is all going on its own evolutionary trajectory as descendants of this one line of life. You can have what's called the ecological species concept, and it's the species are lineages that occupy the most similar ecological zone together (laughs) you could have one of my personal favorites which is the authoritarian species concept i am an expert in this group i say it's a new species species. (laughs) yeah i guess that doesn't really fly right (laughs) not necessarily but that's actually honestly kind of what it boils down to a lot of the time yeah yeah. Uh (laughs) and so things get sticky you know i'm sitting here looking at my shelf and i do i have this book called species concepts and phylogenetic theory a debate it is one of the most boring books that I've ever read, and I, I, I feel bad. I'm not, <laughs> not trying to belittle the editors of this book, but man, it is tough to get through. And mm-hmm. once you get into really the semantics of trying to figure out what a new species actually is, it does get, you know, kind of... Well, it requires so much expertise. You you don't have any context to discuss it with people who aren't also experts. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that makes it a real challenge. That's the same for like really deep computer work. It's the same. Anytime you get into a really, really deep technical concept where you have to have so many specialized terms and have to understand so many concepts, it's really yeah. challenging to make it accessible. So, exactly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Same but, in linguistics as well. People do an entire PhD on one word. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and you can also get very philosophical about it as well. Um, discussing a species concept can can also involve a lot of philosophy, which yes. is 
gets a little sticky also, especially around scientists. Very yeah, so keep that away from the physicists. Brian Cox will yeah. have you, right? So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so it, it is hard to, dis- to determine what a species is. But again, it's you kind of know it when you see it, especially if you're very familiar with a group of organisms or, you know, working in biology. I, I kid you not when I say I could easily talk with you another hour or two about this without getting tired. <laughs> but I we do have to wind down. Have you uh, had any real-life monster encounters or any real-life monsters you've researched? Um, not really. I mean, again, I've kind of had this interest in cryptozoology from a skeptical standpoint for a lot of my uh, life. So yeah. I, I definitely keep, keep, keep tabs on all that. Um, and there are some fairly monstrous-looking fishes out there. Um, oh, yeah. And, <laughs> um, my current position here, I, I manage the Scripps Institution of Oceanography Fish Collection. Uh, we are probably the large, the largest, if not one of the largest, um, uh, deep sea fish collections in the world, and which means we have a lot of really weird looking fish from the deep ocean. Some of my personal favorites: a lot of big teeth, a lot of glowing. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, uh, your your you know t- specimen is someone else's nightmare. I mean, that's exactly. I mean, <laughs> it's great. And and so so in terms of monster monster hunting, that is for me really what it is. You know, mm-hmm. we I take students on field trips quite a lot uh, for various classes off the coast. Here we go, literally just ten miles off of San Diego, and trawl, put a big net in the water about say maybe about two thousand feet, one thousand five hundred feet down in the open ocean, pull it for like 15 or 20 minutes. And then it takes like an hour and a half to get it back up. It takes forever um, to get it back up. But when you get that on the deck and there's like dragonfish and vampire squid and, you know, uh, <laughs> giant red, red shrimp and just lots of teeth and everything's black and some of it's still glowing. Wow. That is, to me, is really, you know, monster hunting in, in, in an essence. And it is very different than a bunch of people running around the woods of, Oregon shouting or playing noises. And <laughs> Absolutely. I guess that's getting back to kind of what field biology actually is versus what uh, the Discovery Channel or History Channel will have you believe field yeah. biology is. Yeah. Oh, and for your students not being accustomed to those creatures, they must be very strange. Oh, yeah. And it, I mean, it's great. They The students love it. And uh, I mean, even I, you know, I didn't really have much exposure to deep sea stuff, but any body of water, if you put a net down there, pool or just the concept of fishing you know is you never know what you're going to catch unless you're targeting a certain type of fish uh so that aspect of it the discovery is is really an aspect that drives me in the field um Mm -hmm. or even as you're if you're snorkeling or scuba diving it's that that aspect of it is great and i'm sure it's the same for people doing work on land or anywhere else nice well we have one final question and that is what's your favorite monster ah yeah so um I guess I kind of have, I guess, two, two. Can I, can I get two? Can I have two? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go for so it. So one, which I think is also, uh, if I remember, maybe one of Blake's favorites, which is uh, th- The Thing from the movie The Thing, uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. And it's awesome because it's, it's every monster. What? <laughs> exactly. I, love, I just love that one. That's probably my favorite movie, so... Well, there goes I, I that just, next hour of conversation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then in terms of a cryptid, um, I have a favorite cryptid. It's Macaulay and Bembe. And uh, oh. that one I was just always enamored with as a kid because to me, 
you know, I, I've been in uh, the Amazon rainforest. I can, I can see how difficult it is to actually see animals in those environments. The Congo is probably just as dense, just as crazy. And so to me as a kid, that was one where I was like, oh, man, this could actually be a thing. Oh, yeah. um, and that's why I was I was really taken by Macaulay and Membe more than anything else, I think, in the cryptozoological world. And so that really, I think, to me, still, I would I would put as my top favorite cryptid for sure. It would be great great. it would be so great if it was real. That would be yeah. Uh, but then if you go to like you know read more about it, especially in recent years, it's a little less. Oh no no! Like, I it, it's <laughs> absolutely not a, a living dinosaur. No, and, and, and especially since some of the uh, creationist yeah. researchers have really taken taken charge with it it's gotten a little yeah. less fun to follow it but has but I, I still it is wonderful one to imagine and and uh it would be it'd be fascinating if true uh well it's so me, I, but, but i mean for this one more thing out this is you just reminded me since you're talking about Michele Mbembe uh and you do taxonomy what what about the whole thing about brontosauruses and apatosauruses or like, <laughs> is that is that can you demystify that for me <laughs> yeah so i don't know if either of you there's another podcast called blurry photos um it's a comedic <laughs> skeptic podcast and i'm i'm friends with those guys and this came up recently they they got in trouble for saying brontosaurus don't exist anymore and everybody's like but that paper came out um so so what that was is this you know a student published a paper kind of revising that whole family of dinosaurs that that they occur in um, and and they reexamined the type material of Brontosaurus and determined, kind of based on the shape. If I remember correctly, I read the paper like right after it came out, but it's been a couple of years, so I can't remember correctly uh, or exactly what it was. But I think it was having to do with the shape of the femur of the type specimen of Brontosaurus, even though the specimen was made up of bones of what like two or three different. Um, um, species, I think, is what, why it ended up getting kind of sunk initially. Um, but the, the femur was different enough for him to do what's called to resurrect the species out of synonymy, so bring it back. Um, and being able to write resurrect in a paper is great also in this context when, sure. you're, when you're writing about this. But um, So he, he was able to, you know, um, the student resurrected the name Brontosaurus because he thought that the type material, so the holotype of Brontosaurus, or uh, I guess at that point, whenever it was described, they didn't use that term, but he thought it was different enough. <laughs> that, that paper came out, and very quickly, a rebuttal was written saying that this is not necessarily the best evidence for bringing this name back. And he right. moved a couple other species into, that, into the genus Brontosaurus, I think also happened. And okay. so some, some people wrote a response, I think it was in Science or Nature... And then, honestly, I haven't really heard much since then. And I think it's been, what, two or three years because I was just, you know, talking to the guys over there about this. And, and yeah, I haven't found any any mention of it kind of since 2000, what, 15 or 14. So it's an unsettled so, matter. I think it is, honestly. The, at, as it stands on the books at the moment, Brontosaurus is valid. It's back. Brontosaurus is back, baby. It's valid. But, I think you know, that, somebody's so, okay. probably working on a paper that's going to sink it again. Mm-hmm. I see. Well... I, but maybe main, not. If if you order the ribs, it will tip your car over. That's the main thing I know about Brontosaurus. Yes, definitely. So, yeah. <laughs> Good old Flintstones. <laughs> All right, let's let's finish it up. I, I really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, yeah, yeah, thank for, you. That, that's fascinating. You know really so is. much. This is great. It's some really cool hard science for the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah definitely. The listeners will love it. Monster dog. 
You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You've just heard an interview with Ben Frabel about the methodology of naming species. Ben works at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego. And if you happen to be attending the 2017 San Diego Comic-Con, you can catch Ben on Sunday, July 23rd from 4 to 5 discussing the crossovers between science and science fiction. Also, if you enjoyed listening to this episode's stories about various species names, there's a little more of that after the credits in this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views and opinions expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions or the views of the Skeptic Society or of Skeptic Magazine. Of course, Skeptic does have views, and you can find them at your local newsstand or by visiting skeptic.com. While you're there, why not check out our show notes for this episode? We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Thanks again for all the book donations. I'm working on some very interesting episodes dealing with the supernatural, and we have another look at the work of H.P. Lovecraft coming up, as well as a visit down under to discuss the surprisingly hazardous creature known as a drop bear. I hope you'll come back for those episodes. Also, I haven't had time to put together a proper promo for it, but CSI's annual skeptically-themed convention is coming to Las Vegas this October. Check it out at csiconference.org. They have an amazing lineup of guests, including many people you've heard on this show. It looks to be a blast. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you so much for listening. Did you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. Monster Talk. <laughs> and so just really quickly, because I, I didn't do it earlier, and I, I know this has gone on for a while, and you guys can edit this uh, how you'd like. I do have a list of some fun names. Oh, yeah. I just want to throw out. Oh, oh, sure. uh, we should, this, you know, I always like to put some stinger at the end after the credits. So yeah. how long do you think this will be? Uh, like five minutes. Oh, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so one of my personal favorites is a, a deep water 
uh, pygmy angelfish. This is a beautiful reef fish uh, group. And there's one that lives on deep reefs in the Indo-Pacific, and its name is its species name is Centropagi narcosis. Um, Centropagi is the genus, narcosis is the species. It's called narcosis. Um, I'm so when you're, scuba, yeah. <laughs> when you're when you're scuba diving, if you go below a certain depth, the um, the amount of nitrogen kind of going into your body causes you uh, uh, below a certain depth, under a, a certain amount of partial pressure, you're, you 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 uh, start to get a little loopy. It's kind of like you're drunk. It's called the um, Martini principle, I believe. <laughs> uh, for every every atmosphere of water you go down, which is uh, 33 feet or, or 10 meters of water, it's like drinking one dry martini. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, so there were these, there's a researcher named Richard Pyle who studies deep reef fish. And he's done some pretty dangerous diving. Like diving at 300 feet on air is not a really good thing to do. You usually want to use a, a higher oxygen mix. Uh, or um, not higher oxygen, Hydro- but nit- less, nit- nit- less nitrogen mix. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they mix helium or something. Anyways, so he was down there. He had heard about this fish, and so so he was trying to collect it. He got up to the surface finally after his like three hours of going back to the surface, and he was so narked out that he thought he hadn't caught it. Oh wow! <laughs> and then he looked in his collecting bucket while he was there, and it was there. Whoa. And so he named it Centropagi narcosis. <laughs> Because he thought he had just kind of hallucinated the fish. That's neat. <laughs> wow. Um, and then you have some with, like, you know, not as big a stories, but another, there's a great uh, little basslet. Uh, it's not a basslet. Um, gosh, I don't really know. It's a, a beautiful little reef fish. They're called Pseudochromus. I don't know what their common name would be. Anyways, it's called Siphozaps. Zap, zaps is the Greek word, <laughs> Greek word for lightning. Um, he collected the fish during a lightning storm. <laughs> Dangerous. Yeah. Uh, there's a fish that was just described last year, Picoltia Greedo Eye, because its face looks a lot like the character Greedo from Star Wars. And it shoots first. What? <laughs> yes. That makes me think of the bishop fish. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which we talked about, yeah. Um, there's a, a genus of goby called Zappa, which a um, researcher named in honor of Frank Zappa. Oh, nice. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah, and then um, so there's all sorts of fun names out there. You every you know you hear about these dung beetle named after George W. Bush or the spider yeah. named after you know whoever. People mm-hmm. do that a lot for publicity, and it's a good way to get your lab you know on the map. Somebody named a bunch of darter species in Alabama after various U.S. presidents that had good environmental records. Um, wow. So there's <laughs> those fun things around, but I guess just summing it all up as. Uh, there are still a lot of undescribed species out there. We uh, still have a lot of work cut out for us. <laughs> we need people with the training to do it. We don't need people without the training who are unwilling to get the training doing it, <laughs> which has kind of been the case for, you know, Cadborosaurus and Nessie Terris and uh, what is it? Cryptophidions, kind of some of these cryptids that got scientific species described in, in their names, but aren't actually like valid descriptions yeah um there's a lot that we still don't know and that's i think that's the the biggest take-home in talking about species discovery is you can still anybody can describe a new well not anybody but what i'm saying is with the expertise you can probably find a new species to describe and you can get your name on a paper and you can be at a dinner party and be like yeah i've described three new species of fish 
Well, so what I'm hearing is it's better to be friends with someone who's looking for names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not nearly as much work, and you can get your name on it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I see. I, your whole field's broken, don't you see? <laughs> <laughs> that's so the the one rule they've made there has cost so many i mean of course you don't want every species to have your name on it but i you i bet that that one little change totally changed the field <laughs> <laughs> i mean there's a there's a lantern fish called ganicthes coco and the guy who described it his last name was coco and he's like oh no no i named it after my dad nice yeah <laughs> That's pretty funny. A, yeah, I like need that to be a workaround somewhere. <laughs> yeah, my name's uh, William Smith. No, I, no, I was naming it after the actor. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, see, exactly. You know, Smith Eye. <laughs> I bet there's a lot of Smith Eyes. I should just go. There are them. a lot of Smith Eyes. Yeah, sure. yes, it's totally yeah. for, named after me. And my my yeah. predecessor here at work, his last name's Walker. And unfortunately, there was another very prolific South, Southern Californian ichthyologist in the '50s whose last name was also Walker. So there are a lot of Walker eyes, and a lot of them are not my coworker. <laughs> ah. But what about Texas Ranger eyes? Them. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that, not yet, but you could. <laughs> I think there is a. Uh, I think there's a Tonto eye. I was gonna say the Chuck Norris really? probably doesn't need species named after him. I, you I, know, I'm, there's probably a Norris <laughs> eye, honestly. Probably. <laughs> there's definitely. I think there's a, a genus. Um, Oh, just thinking of other famous things, I think there's a genus called Beetlejuice, not the galaxy or star, but the, uh, the named ghost. after the movie. Yeah, that's really. <laughs> <laughs> and then, ooh, just recently, okay, one last one, a cichlid with kind of a cichlid. You know, these African freshwater fishes. There's one. This is a cichlid from South South America that has kind of these weird, like rodent fang-like teeth in the front of its mouth. And they named the genus Nosferatu. Oh, cool. Oh, that's yeah. a good one. <laughs> that, that was, uh, sorry, that was at the top of my list, and I actually forgot. I skipped that one. Oh, that's I'm going to Google awesome that one. <laughs> what, do you, what is the vampire squid actually called? Though? It's, I think it's Vampratuthis. Okay. That, that's hmm. a wicked cool-looking animal. Yeah. They're a lot smaller than, they, than you think. How, how small do I think they are? What? <laughs> I mean, uh, it, well, I know for me mean. at least, like a lot of people have a misconception that things are. Okay, can I guess? Because I'm not large. looking. I, I want to guess. Larger than life. I think they're about the size of maybe smaller than a soccer ball, bigger than a softball. Uh, yeah, you're kind of it, it, closer to the softball size, but yeah, okay. you're definitely in the ballpark. Quite a range. I'm in the ballpark. <laughs> Look what he did there. What? <laughs> yeah. Hey, I did that without even thinking about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Contagious. <laughs> Holy crap. But, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> but a lot of people think these deep sea fishes especially are a lot bigger than they actually are. Like the angler fish. Those guys are, are piddly. Most of them are smaller than a softball. Oh, but they look cool. Yeah, I think yeah. so many people are just scared of, of uh, the ocean and it just seems so large and, and frightening. And so they yeah. just envision these things as being much bigger and scarier than they really are. Oh, that's like yeah. that's like life, man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it just got deep. But anyway. Yeah. Well, I, I do have a little bit of a plug, if you don't mind. I'll go for it. Um, I, I am... It's it's still kind of uh, top secret at the moment until like two days from now, but since it's not going to be aired until then, I'm I'm gonna I'm being featured on a panel of scientists. Uh, for any of you, the listeners out there that are going to Comic Con here in San Diego in three weeks, 
or two weeks, I'm, I'm going to be on a panel of scientists kind of talking about the influence of science fiction on science and the influence of science on science fiction. Um, and that's going to happen on the last day of Comic-Con. And I'm going to be joined by like a nanotechnologists and mechanical engineers, robotics guy, uh, genetics folks. And that should be really fun. So if you happen to be at Comic-Con, yeah. um, come on by. Yeah, definitely. I have again. I can pull out examples upon examples. Oh yeah! <laughs> if going. I actually come to your where you work, I could see some real stuff. I would. I would love. Yeah, if you guys are ever find yourselves in San Diego, um, I would love to give a tour of our collection. I have oh, awesome. a goblin shark prominently displayed. Are you as soon serious? As you Those are awesome. Collection. Oh my! My two-year-old would love that too. Yeah. <laughs> so that, maybe one day. Sounds great. Yeah, because I mean, the goblin shark is is probably one of my favorite real monsters i was obsessed with that fish and you know its original japanese name is tenguzame which is a tengu is a you know a a, a demon a yokai yeah, demon yeah. <laughs> they are awesome are, they are so how big are they are they like six feet or, or? uh their max size is about 14 feet actually they oh really they're way bigger wow. than i thought wow the one that I have is a juvenile, which uh, honestly, most of the specimens in collections are kind of the babies. So my guy here, or my gal here, I guess she's, I think it's female, is uh, only about three and a half feet long. Okay. That's still still amazing. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. And then, well. one, more, one more fun thing to look up. I'll let you guys look this up on your own if you've never heard about it, but it's called Cookie Cutter Shark. No. No, I haven't heard of that. I, take, you should take a look at the Wikipedia article on that fish. That's another one I always show initial, like in, at the beginning of a tour. Will do. <laughs> oh my god! You're doing it already. I'm doing it. Yeah. No, that's yeah. <laughs> that is an yeah. odd looking animal. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Okay. No, I got to stop because I would just keep talking yeah. to you. All right. So. I, I can, oh, I'm yeah, seeing I, it. Yeah. I, I frequently, so I have to always wow. control myself with that as well. <laughs> no worries. All right. Well, have a good evening, guys. Yeah. Take care. Monster dog. Wait. You do did, an x-ray and count all the vertebra. Did you say peduncle? Yeah. Wow. There's a pedant and peduncle joke right there. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's leave it unsaid. <laughs> no, no. I mean, <laughs> pedants and peduncles. This is awesome. <laughs>